Yes, no? Is this working now? Hey, I told you I was rusty. Turning the mic on would be uh, step number one for preaching. Is this going? Yes, no? Okay, we're getting there. All right. Yes, exactly. Exactly, perfect. Oh, wow, okay, I'm feeling it now. So, all right. Okay, so I'm not going to repeat all I just said, so if you couldn't hear me, sorry. Um, But anyways, the gospel is something that pervades everything about who we are, right? It's the way that we think, the way that we see the world, what we value, how we view our achievements in life. This book talks a lot about our responses to all of life's circumstances and the source of our joy and happiness. So today, we're going to be going through the, uh, a section in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Now, this is the type of text that you may just kind of gloss over as you're reading through your Bible on your own time. It's certainly not that kind of coffee mug type text, uh, especially compared to the rest of the letter where it has all these beautiful phrases and things like that. But what I do want us to see today is that Paul is in full-on application mode as he's writing to the church in Philippi. So Paul is giving an update about these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we're going to see that they are the object lesson of Paul's message. So a couple warnings before we dive in here. So first, this text has to be read in light of the first two chapters of the book. So if you haven't had a chance to dig into our our previous week's sermon from Michael and Cameron last week, uh, please just go ahead and pull out your AirPods, go ahead and listen to those online, okay? You won't offend me, people might give you weird looks, but whatever, it's good, all right? You see, God's word is always going to marry this wonderful tension. It's going to take us through the depth and beauty of God and the creator and the truths of who he is and who we are, and then it's going to take the that message and land the plane to some really practical calls for obedience and application in our lives. And so we've been seeing that lofty language of the last few weeks, and today we're going to ground it into some action. And so second, because today's text is particularly practical, sorry, I can't say that, particularly practical, I'm going to try and be particularly practical as well. So pray that I be filled with wisdom and insight, and that I give you guys lots of things to do this week, okay? Sound good? All right, so let's go ahead and read our text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Oh, did I go out again? I win? Okay. All right. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because, he heard that he, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him. 
therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay. All right, so before we dig in, let's just quickly recap where we've been so far. So in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul is going to proclaim really the anthem verse of this book. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Now what Paul is saying is that as long as I'm here on this earth, my life will be continually transformed toward Jesus's through the gospel for his purposes. So God the Father sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, exchanging his perfection in righteousness for our sin in rebellion. And not only does he justify us, but the Holy Spirit begins a new work in each of us, changing our minds and our hearts and our actions to be what we were created to be. And then God uses that transformed life to magnify and grow his kingdom in the hearts of men and women. And so Paul kind of almost sets up this question for us that Michael asked a couple weeks ago. What does it mean when we say, to live is Christ? Now I think he gets to the answer pretty quickly. We talked about in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' chosen life was to be a humble servant, he sacrificed his power, his position, and prestige for the sake of loving others. And that phrase, to live as Christ, is almost ironic. Because the true life that Paul is talking about isn't even possible were it not for the death of Jesus. And so our hope as Christians comes through the creator and maker of all things, who entered the world of his creation with humility. And he subjected himself to its evil. And so Jesus' humble example is to lay down his life for others when it means pain and suffering for him. And as we are to live as Christ, we are commanded to live that same example out as Jesus did. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourself. He says it even more directly right before that in verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so as Paul moves through chapter 2, he continues to beg and exhort and plea for the Philippians to do that thing. Be like Jesus. Live your lives, not for yourselves, but set your sights on Christ and in serving others. It's what Jesus did for us. 
And out of Christ's work on the cross and the power of the Spirit, we are free to no longer be bound as slaves to worshiping our own selfish ends. I mean, think about it. So much of the world that we live in spends dollars and time and advertising and anything else you can think of to try and convince you that your happiness means fulfilling something in you. If you just get that promotion, if you find that right guy or girl, if you just make a little bit more money, if you nab that perfect house, I mean, you can almost hear that promise in your mind. If I get that, then I'll be happy. Then my life will be so much better. That's not what it says. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, do you think that Jesus just missed the memo that life is all about self-actualization and and pursuing your best self? I mean, this is what Cameron was talking about last week when he read chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. As Christians, our lives are no longer our own. And rather than living for ourselves, we now worship a king who displays his great love for others. And we joyfully follow in his footsteps. And in a world that's desperately searching for happiness, the answer doesn't lie in our own wants, our own needs, but in proclaiming and following the example of a God who lays down his life sacrificially for others. All right, so we see the argument that Paul's building here, right? Okay, so let's go ahead and take a look at our text. He's going to discuss two men here, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, as I said, at first, these verses seem like an aside, okay? But as you read carefully, Paul is commending these two men as examples to the Philippians, as Christ's examples, They're the human embodiments of Paul's exhortations in chapter 1 and 2. So let's take a look at a little bit who these guys are here, okay? Our first example is Timothy. Many of you probably heard of Timothy before. Paul's going to meet Timothy in the city of Lystra while he's church planting. You can read kind of the backstory in Acts chapter 16. Now, Timothy was a young guy. He had a good reputation. Uh, We know that he's kind of got a family legacy of faith. And they hit it off quickly, okay, because Paul actually leaves Lystra and takes Timothy with him on his journey. Now, from there, Timothy becomes kind of the Robin to Paul's Batman on his missionary endeavors, all right? He accompanies him wherever he goes. And and whenever we see that Paul's detained, he typically will send Timothy in his stead or in his place. So one of the first places that they go to is Philippi. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 17, But what we see is that Timothy watches the church founded through the conversions of a couple people. Lydia, there's a jailer that becomes a Christian there. And while it doesn't give us a whole lot of context about Timothy and his relationship with the Philippian church, it's clear from this text that the church knows him well, that they've experienced him and his ministry, and that they love Timothy in the same way that they love Paul. So what is it that makes Timothy such a great example in Paul's eyes? 
Look at verse 20 and see how it kind of mirrors that language Paul uses in verses 3 and 4. He says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Let me just read to you, reread to you verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is commending Timothy as a man who puts others' interests before his own in the name of Christ. He sacrifices his time and his money and his wants for the sake of other people. And while we don't get specifics here, it's clear that Timothy has shown both to Paul and the Philippians that he loves them more than he loves himself. I mean, think about how incredible that is for Paul to say that about Timothy. I have no one like him. I mean, Paul is surrounded by Christian missionaries. He's got Silas and Luke right there with him in his journeys. And yet it's evident that Timothy models Christ's humility more than any of them. So much so that Paul proudly calls Timothy like a son with a father as they serve in the gospel. Timothy is uniquely valued and enjoyed by both Paul and the Philippians because he models Christ's humility in putting others before himself. Now, the second man that Paul talks about is much less known to us, um, but he's just as important to the Philippian church. Now, Epaphroditus is a Philippian himself. He was the messenger that was sent by the church to deliver some sort of gift to Paul while he was on his missionary journeys. And this is the only time that he's mentioned in Scripture. So we don't know much about this guy, how he became a Christian, what he did for a living. We really know nothing about him. But what's important is that the personality traits and the background story aren't what's important to Paul. Here's what Paul tells us about Epaphroditus. So first, we know that Epaphroditus wears many hats. In verse 25, Paul calls him a worker, a soldier, a messenger, and a minister. So this guy isn't just a delivery driver, okay? He's not just dropping off the gift and turning around and heading home for the night. He's meeting physical, emotional, and spiritual needs for Paul on behalf of the Philippian church. We also know that this guy was a risk taker. I mean, take a look at this map. I think I got a map up here for you. Sorry, history teacher, that's what you get, okay? Um, Epaphroditus is going to travel from Philippi to Rome, okay? So I looked it up on Google Maps, right? So that's 213 hours of walking, which I don't know. Like, Google Maps, you're walking me through an, uh, a sea right there. So that's a little bit confusing, but okay. That's a 750-mile journey that he had to take, okay? So he presumably walked, hopped on a boat, navigated multiple nations, dangerous roads, natural elements, thieves and robbers, which is very common that day, the Roman army, all while carrying something of value with him. I mean, who knows what the gift was? It was probably money, some rations, all to give it to a guy who was sitting in jail, I mean, the equivalent today would be if, if CTK decided that we were going to help a North Korean pastor who's in jail. And so we just said, hey, we need somebody who's going to volunteer to take it to him. Anybody? I mean, you think it's hard to get, like, to volunteer in CTK kids, right? 
Like, this is a commitment here, okay? Epaphroditus is sacrificing his time and his money, his safety, his livelihood, all for the sake of helping Paul on behalf of his church. I think it's easy for us to not really appreciate what Epaphroditus was willing to do for the Paul and for his people. And we also know that he almost dies for it. Look at verse 27. Paul says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I mean, talk about like the textbook definition of to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Epaphroditus is emulating Christ here, almost sacrificing his own life to be a servant for the sake of advancing God's incredible gospel by simply supporting a dearly loved missionary. And so similar to Timothy, Epaphroditus' defining attribute is his humility. He pursued the interests of Christ in loving others at the sacrifice and expense of himself, even if it meant death for him. Now fortunately for us, God spares Epaphroditus, and he himself is the one that delivers this letter home. He travels that 1,500 miles or 750 miles back, and he takes the word of God to the Philippians. Both of these men are models to the Philippian church of what it means to live out those verses we're talking about. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. They are showing the church what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. All right, so I told you we're going to be heavy on application today. So how do we apply this part of the letter to us in our day? What do these two now long dead people who are kind of footnotes in history have to do with us? Paul used these two men to be the examples to the Philippian church. He wanted the Christians in Philippi to have godly, Christ-honoring examples to look to for how to live out the gospel humbly in their lives. And so the same is true of us here at CTK. So our first application, I'm going to give you four today, although I got some sub-points embedded in here, so we're going to roll is that every Christian needs godly examples in their life, or whatever you want to call it. Mentors, disciplers, sages, I don't don't care. You call it whatever you want. I'm going to call examples today, okay? The Philippians had Timothy and Epaphroditus. Who do you have? You see, having a godly example in your life is a key ingredient to growing in your faith. Examples are able to grow you in ways that you would never be able to do on your own. I mean, just look at what Timothy and Epaphroditus do for the Philippians, okay? Just, just rattle it off here, okay? They give the Philippians a living, breathing picture of Christ's humility. So each and every day, that church gets to see men whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. They teach us what obedience and maturity looks like. You know you have a good mentor or example when you see kind of how you ought to be living, It's almost like this part frustrating kind of experience because like you see all the ways that you fail and you're like, man, 
But then it's also like partly inspiring too. You're like, I want to live like that person. I want, I want to be spurred on all the more to be devoted in my faith to Christ because I see what it could be in that person. They were other-centered, and they cared for people well. I mean, I think about just reaping the benefits of, of people's maturity. If you've ever had the opportunity to learn from a mature and godly man or woman, isn't it amazing? Like, they're the type of people that you want to be around because you get to experience the benefits of someone who takes a genuine interest in you, that they love you selflessly and sacrificially, that you help you in your life. And we also see that Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're battle-tested. And Paul calls Timothy, he's proven his worth. He says about Epaphroditus, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Godly examples, they don't just cave or quit or flake out, but they endure. And that displays their genuine faith and commitment to Christ, even when things are hard. We'll get to that hardship later on in Philippians. Do we have any uh, Ted Lasso fans in here? Okay, a couple of you, all right? If you haven't, it's this kind of cult TV show that's going on right now uh, about this American football coach who goes over to England to coach a professional soccer or football team, a European football team. Now, if you know the story, Ted has his work cut out for him because he walks into this hostile kind of British football culture, and everybody there is skeptical and sarcastic and selfish, and you kind of just almost are waiting and expecting for him to kind of succumb to it, right, and give in to it. But, but rather than succumbing to the culture, he sets this example through kind of his big heart for other people. And if you've seen the show, over the course of the show, it starts to kind of transform the people in his life, the players that he's coaching and the other coaches, uh, the media members and, and the executives that he works with. And there's this kind of cool picture right at the beginning, the kind of the opening credits of the episode. He's in this big stadium, and all the seats are blue. Uh, and as he sits down, the seat turns red, and it kind of emanates out from there. And all the seats kind of near him, and then it gets further and further in the ripple effect. All the seats go from blue to red. And it's just this cool visual picture of how much an example can influence a place or a people for the better. Having a godly example in our life displays the gospel. It gives us a vision for what it can look like in our own lives. Proverbs 13, 20 says it like this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You need wise examples in your life. You need to be challenged daily to lay down your selfish desires and to replace them with a full commitment to Jesus as Lord over your life. So I ask you again, who's doing that for you right now? Who are your Timothy and Epaphroditus? Maybe it's a pastor here at CTK like Timothy was. Or, or maybe it's just a friend or a seasoned Christian like Epaphroditus. But if you're having a hard time coming up with a couple people on your list, you are stunting your ability to grow in your faith. And I would follow up that question with how much are you rubbing shoulders with your examples? It's not enough to just see these people once a month. It's not going to cut it. You need to see and learn and grow from these men and women in action. 
You need to learn from their character and their wisdom and faith. So a couple of uh, sub-points of wisdom here before we kind of move on here. So first, I, I think it's relevant that the people Paul points to as examples for the Philippians are people that they know. You see, we live in an age of kind of the celebrity Christian. And there's lots of wonderful examples out there of pastors and teachers and writers who can and will inform your understanding of Scripture and theology. But when I'm talking about having examples in your life, I'm not talking about John Piper. I don't care who your favorite preacher is. They don't know you. They can't be genuinely concerned for your welfare in a personal way. They cannot speak into the areas of your life where you need to repent and grow. And I think this is a problem for many of us. Because we oftentimes replace kind of the real relationships that should be playing out in our lives with podcasts. So find humble men and women that will know you personally, that will care for you and shape you fully as a Christ follower. And invest and challenge you to grow in your faith. Now, my second piece of advice is to insert yourself into the orbit of the examples that you want to grow from. Here's the deal. Godly men and women are busy. They're not just kind of sitting around waiting for someone to show up and say, hey, would you invest time and and energy into me? No. They're already loving people. And so you need to move towards them. You will spend the rest of your life complaining about not having examples in your life. Don't just sit around. Seek out the people that you admire or or the people that you think you could admire. And be creative about how you get time in their life. The men that I want to emulate and grow from who are doing the work of ministry, they're not just sitting on the couch waiting around. But I'm sure that a number of them could use some help doing house projects or hanging out with their kids, or making dinner together. And the best part of it is that those are the times where you're going to learn the most, simply by watching mature men and women live out their faith. So don't wait around. Find those men and women in your life who can be examples for you to follow. It is one of the best things you can do as a Christian. Now, the last piece of this here, uh, our last piece of advice is that Paul gives multiple examples to the Philippian church. He's actually going to give a third one here later on in his book. I think it's common, especially if you went through some sort of college ministry, that people should feel like they should have this kind of one disciple, okay? Like the person that they learn everything from. I just need this one example in my life that's going to teach me everything that I need to know. Now, that's certainly one way to do it, but I would also say that it's not the only way. Or even the normative way for most people. You see, here's the problem. Most people don't have time to invest all of their time into one person. Especially as you get older, you have a job and a family, all of life's responsibilities take hold. Now the other issue is that one person is not going to be mature in all facets of their life. This model breeds one-dimensional disciples. And the New Testament spills a lot of ink talking about how the body of Christ is uniquely gifted to serve the rest of the body. Proverbs 14.11 kind of says it in an indirect way. It says, where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. 
Think about the areas in your life where you need to grow and start asking around. Who are the best moms and dads here at CTK? Who can help me to to share the gospel more faithfully in my workplace? What what married couple can I learn from? Who, Who knows hospitality? Who does it well in this church? Don't sit around and wait, but find these people in your life who can be the examples for you to follow. All right, so that's point number one. Sorry. We're we're rolling here, okay? All right, point number two. Encourage and honor your examples. Look at verse 29, what Paul says to the Philippian church. He says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul is actually commanding the Philippian church to find joy in and honor Epaphroditus and other men like him. That's a picture of a healthy church where the people of God recognize the good works of men and women who are honoring Christ and working for the good of others. Now, I know we live in a culture and day in an age where it's forbidden to say nice things about other people. But encouragement and honor is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to a mature Christian. You see, when people commit their lives to serving others, it can be easy to get discouraged. I mean, if you're you're a parent, you know this and understand this, right? You spend the whole day loving your kids. You do all these things for them. You lay out kind of your blood, sweat, and tears for their happiness, And then they throw a temper tantrum because they wanted a chocolate cupcake instead of a vanilla cupcake, right? Okay? People are hard. People are sinful. Life is filled with injustice and pain and suffering. And mature Christians enter into that with other people. They put other people's needs over their own. They sacrifice their time and their resources. And many times it doesn't pay off. It is easy to be discouraged, but we can serve our examples and love them by encouraging them in the faith. So take some time this week and write a letter. Don't write a text message. Don't put an email. Put a legitimate letter to the people in your life who have served as an example in the faith for you. Encourage them. Tell them how much joy that they've brought to your life. How their faith has strengthened yours. And share with them all the ways that God's work in them has shaped God's work in you. We need to encourage and honor the examples in our lives. All right, number three. The third takeaway from this passage is that we need to be examples. Here's the deal. Timothy and Epaphroditus aren't superheroes. Uh, They don't have some special superpower that makes them capable of getting these shout-outs in the Bible. They're faithful Christians who've been changed by God's grace, and they've allowed the Spirit to work in their lives, and they've committed to putting others' needs above their own. Every Christian should aspire to that and work towards it. That's what Paul's saying when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's calling us to be obedient, not to earn our salvation, but because he's using it for his glorification and for our good. And obedience means to lay down our needs and wants and preferences for the sake of loving Christ and our neighbors. 
So a couple of sub points here, okay? If you want to be an example, you need to start growing in your character right now. Character is a lifetime endeavor. You're not going to figure it out on day two of wanting to be an example for other people. But as you seek to grow as a man or woman of God in your character, that will bear fruit over the years to come. Number two, start now. Okay? It is never too early to start being an example. I mean, I find it interesting that, that Timothy is one of the examples in this book. I mean, Paul tells Timothy over in a different book in 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was a young guy. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. If you think you have to hit some sort of milestone before you can be a godly example to other people, you're missing out on God's intention for you. And the sooner you figure it out, the sooner that you'll see that God will use you powerfully in the lives of other people. I, I have a, four kids. My oldest is Avery. She's seven years old. I was just thinking through, I'm her dad, right? So how do I want Avery to grow up in this church? I want her to have examples all over the place. You know, like she needs her mom and dad to be her example, to, to faithfully day in and day out show her what it means to love Jesus and to, to sacrifice for her. But she needs more than just us, right? She needs the people in her city group to, when mom and dad are, are saying you can't wear a two-piece bathing suit, to be like, yeah, you shouldn't be wearing a two-piece bathing suit. That's just my own personal opinion here, Okay. <laughs> Okay, but like she needs older, wiser women to say, yeah, this isn't a smart thing to do when you don't listen to your mom and dad, okay? She, I, I would love it if we had a 12-year-old kid in this church who's figuring out their faith for the first time to spend time with my 7-year-old. How cool would that be? How cool would it if I have college kids coming over to dinner from my house and having fun with my kids and showing them that young adults love Jesus, and that life isn't about out there following whatever thing college kids do these days. I don't know. I'm getting old. Okay. That's what examples look like. And that's how people see and cast a vision for what life looks like as a, a disciple of Christ. Now, the third aspect of being an example is that you're going to have to learn to live for others rather than yourself. In every facet of your life, you are going to wrestle between pursuing your own interests and the interests of other people. Now listen to what Paul says about Timothy again. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. We have a choice. We can prioritize ourselves or we can prioritize others. So I want you to ask yourselves the following question. I'm just going to roll through a couple areas of your life. Do I seek my own interests in this? Or am I seeking the interests of Christ through my concern for the welfare of others? So let's just take a couple of things, okay? Your prayer life. How much of your prayers are oriented around yourself? How much of your prayers are oriented around your own self-interests? What do you pray for most often? Are your prayers filled with your thoughts and hopes for others? Or is a lot of spilled thoughts about your life and how it needs to get better? 
What about your social media, your TV, your, your consumption of, of entertainment? I mean, take the sum total of your time and energy that you spend on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok and whatever cool apps out there that I'm way past. Who benefits from your social media engagement? Does this time on these apps lead to the fruits of the Spirit, your love and joy and peace playing out in your life towards others? How is using these things building each other up in love? Is the time that you spend on social media drawing you away from being able to meet with the needs of other people or spend time with other people? Are these apps building deeper and stronger relationships or are they fostering more shallow relationships? As you uh, spend your nights, are your nights filled with watching TV shows or are they investing in relationships? How often does TV serve as a selfish escape from your calling to the harder things in the Christian faith. What about your future? And when you think about your future plans, your job, your life, retiring someday, are others a part of that plan? Does your future self have a greater concern and work for helping others? Or is it all about meeting your own interests? When you make big decisions in your life that are going to change kind of fundamentally your life circumstances, who, co- who comes into account when you think about those things? Or, or take your money. Is your money self-interested or others interested? Where does your discretionary income get spent? Are those things orienting your time and your attention towards yourself? Or do they draw others into your life? Is there evidence of cheerful generosity in your bank account? Let me just say it bluntly. Stop caring only about yourself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for giving you a good middle-class lifestyle where you can spend the rest of your days concerned about you. It is a call for you to lay down your life for Christ. Jesus says it in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We must work to be examples for others. Otherwise, we will be filled with a fruitless life, devoid of the power of God that he's given us for his glory. All right, last point for the day, okay? Mature examples boast in the cross and not their maturity. Timothy and Epaphroditus aren't the only examples to the church of Philippi. Paul is the last example to the church. He actually says it later in the book, chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. <laughs> this isn't unique to Paul if you've read his other letters. Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, what's clear in Paul's example throughout his letters is that a godly life is nothing to hang your hat on. 
In fact, the greater the maturity in a Christian, we see a correlation for men and women who more readily acknowledge their persistent, continual need for the grace of Jesus Christ. Christians, please hear me. The people that look to you do not need an invincible Christian. They do not need a man or woman who lives, lives perfectly. They need men and women who acknowledge and repent of their sin, who humble themselves and realize that everything they've been given is a gift from God, who point to any good or mature thing in their life as the work of God's Spirit in their life. And ultimately, any example that we can give is but a dull glimpse of the true example that we have in Christ. He is our example because he is our Savior. Galatians 6, 14. As Paul is saying, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That's my prayer that as a church that God would fill us with mature examples of men and women. Of how the gospel can powerfully reorient our lives. I pray that we would see the impact of godly men and women who are motivated in trusting God to see a work done in us. That we would be people that live for others. And that every Christian here would be an example that boasts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for men like Timothy and Epaphroditus, that your word is filled with people who have been transformed by, by the, your death on the cross, that we are free to live as we were created to be. We've been restored in our relationship with you because you love us. Lord, I pray that to be true in our church, that your spirit would be working in the men and women here, that we would be examples like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Lord, that it wouldn't be something that we operate out of our own strength or how good we are or how mature we are, but that the good and great news of your love for us is what speaks loudly about our lives. And I pray that we would bear fruit not just for today, not for next week, not for this year, but the generations to come. My kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids would be able to point to godly examples in their life, just like the Philippian church can point to Timothy and Epaphroditus. I'm thankful for how you work in us, Lord. It's in your good name we pray. Amen.